the kids in kindergarten through third grade, you're dismissed to go to children's church at this time. We're going to be in Ephesians 5 this morning. Ephesians 5, it's on page 1038 in those black pew Bibles in front of you. Thank you, worship team, girls, and Gary and Danielle and Jack, Emily, thank you all for your hard work today. Gary and Michael for leading us as well. We are camped out in one of the most intensely practical passages in all of Ephesians, maybe in the whole Bible over the next couple of weeks. Paul has made that transition that we've talked about from doctrine to duty. What we believe is true about God and humanity and the rest of creation, how that influences the things that we uh, believe about and the way that we live uh, in relation to God and creation and humanity. And this is the centerpiece. Chapter 5 opened with a ton of instruction, around a dozen commands about how we're to live in the world. What does it mean to be light in the midst of darkness? How do we live in this lost world? The first 14 verses address that. Then verses 15 through 21 give us a glimpse into what it means to live as light among one another. How do we live united as God's people? How do we reflect all those commands that God has given us to love one another? And then verse 22 through the first few verses of chapter 6 shrink that circle once again. We're dealing with the home. We're dealing with marriage. We're dealing with parenting. And Scott Westfall got the ball rolling for us last week looking into how the relationship between one man and one woman is to function biblically. And it's now more important than ever to understand uh, marriage and parenting and have those understandings formed by Scripture. Just this week in our country, significant progress was made in Congress on the Respect for Marriage Act. And on the surface, that sounds good, but instead this is one of those bills that actually does the opposite of what it says it's going to do. Instead of respecting marriage, this particular legislation would work to destroy marriage. It demands federal protection for same-sex marriage, and it redefines marriage ultimately as whatever the most radical state in the union chooses to define it as, including polygamy. It would reshape the way that marriage is viewed legally in our country. But as God's people, we recognize that long before marriage was a legal bond, marriage was and still is a God-ordained institution. Writing about the Respect for Marriage Act this week, Southern Seminary President Albert Moeller said this, if Congress produces this legislation, it cannot actually, in truth, make so-called same-sex marriage actually marriage. That is simply something far beyond the power or authority of the United States Congress, or for that matter, any human government. Marriage is pre-political. Human governments do not create marriage. It is the task and responsibility of the government merely but importantly to recognize and respect marriage. The so-called Respect for Marriage Act is a profound act of disrespect to marriage. The government doesn't define marriage. We must face the reality that we now live in a nation that has fallen so far from a biblical worldview that we could face consequences for holding to the truth of God's word when it comes to marriage. There's a very real possibility that if this particular bill is made law, that churches and other nonprofits that hold to a biblical understanding of marriage would face consequences. We could lose our tax-exempt status. We could face other penalties. But you know what? We'll face those penalties. We'll face those consequences because we believe what the Bible says about marriage is true 
And today we get to examine one of the greatest summaries of the truth of biblical teaching on marriage that, that exists in all of Scripture. But this isn't going to be a sermon about how our culture gets marriage wrong. We should expect that. Our culture is lost. We should actually expect our culture to be much worse off than it is. It's a miracle of God's common grace that our culture is not exponentially more unbiblical than it is. Well, Paul's point here is not that the Ephesian culture or that our culture gets marriage wrong. They did and they do, but that's not where Paul settles. No, Paul's focus and ours is on our very own understanding of marriage. Do we as God's people view marriage like the Bible views marriage? Let's read Ephesians 5 uh, verses 31 through 33 together, and then we'll unpack just a handful of things that I think we'll all find helpful. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Let's pray together over the reading of God's word. Father, we come grateful today, grateful that you have given us a word that is good, grateful that you've given us a word that is trustworthy, and grateful that you've given us a word that endures the test of time. Father, it doesn't matter the era, it doesn't matter the culture or the language, or even the topic, Father, your word does not change. Your word endures as true, and we don't get to reinterpret it to fit our surroundings. We don't get to reinterpret it to fit our preferences. And so, God, we pray that you would help our hearts today to humble themselves before your word. Help us to submit our wills to the truth of your word. And as we see your truth revealed, help it to, to grow the love that we have in our hearts for you and for one another. And God, make us more thankful even today for the gift that marriage is and the reflection in marriage that we see of the gospel, that we see of Christ and the church. God, help us to, to understand those things on a deeper level today so that they cause us to worship God. Let us know your word more, not so that we have more knowledge, but so that we have more love. Father, we pray that as we study your truth together, we would be doers of your word and not just hearers. Help us to apply this teaching to our marriages. Lord, I pray for husbands in this room, those that are husbands today and those who will be one day. God, I pray that they would love their wives in a self-sacrificial way, in a sanctifying way. God, that they would love their wives in a way that is different from the world around them, that, God, they would be men who live with their wives in an understanding way, who are students of their wives, who are passionate about loving their wives and leading their families. God, I pray for the wives in this room and those who will be wives one day, that they would, as they are learning to submit to you as father, that, Lord, they would follow even flawed husbands. God, that they would love them in such a way that grows them toward you, that encourages them toward you, that they would, that they would lovingly correct 
their husbands when that is needed, God, that they would communicate well, that they would raise up another generation of, of young women and young men who will be godly spouses as well. Help us to do well in this area as a church. And we do begin to see a cultural shift in our town, in our county, in our state, in our country, God, as more people come to know you as as our understanding of what it means to be your people and to be made in your image as those things grow and and we see life more the way that you see life, God, we pray that life would be protected, that lives would be changed, and God, that you would be ultimately glorified in this place, we pray in your son's name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we're blessed to have three church vehicles as a part of our ministry here. We've got a, a handicap-accessible bus. We've got two 15-passenger vans. And on the side of them, in big, bright blue letters, it says First Baptist Church of Centralia. It's in different fonts on some. They all look kind of similar. But, um, but that's, that's what we have, and we're thankful to have those things. But if we ever buy a new one, I'll lobby for us to maybe not paint our name on the side of our church vehicle. And here's why. I drive them sometimes. And driving with the weight of 150 years of church history and 200 people represented by the words on the side of your van is stressful if you drive like I do. Okay, I don't know that I want our church's reputation staked on my driving. It's a heavy burden. Now, sometimes we let other ministries and other folks borrow our vehicles. Uh, Scott, who was here and preached last week, he leads the Bridge Collegiate Ministry, and they've used our vehicles for a couple of mission trips. And uh, it's an awesome way that we get to bless other churches and further the kingdom work. Our vans don't further the kingdom very much sitting in the shed, but if they're out on the road taking people out to do ministry, they further the kingdom work in that way. But when they borrow our vehicles, they don't strip our name off the side and paint their name on it. I mean, I wouldn't mind if they did because I would be much more comfortable driving something that says bridge to legion ministry then it's on Scott not on us and I'm cool with that but we probably wouldn't be okay with someone stripping our name off and painting their name on something that belongs to them and then going along like it's theirs but that's where we get in trouble when it comes to marriage both in our opposition to the way the world views it and sometimes with what we expect out of it you see marriage isn't ours Marriage is not a human institution. It doesn't belong to the church or to men or women. It's not for our happiness. We don't get to define it, and we don't get to define our experience of it. Marriage belongs to God, and when we start painting it like it's ours, we're going to have problems. So Paul takes us all the way back to the beginning as he summarizes what a biblical view of marriage really is. And before we dig too deep into this, let me address those of you who are here who aren't married, it's Thanksgiving week, so we have a lot of our college students back home. We are welcome. We're glad you're here. And those of you that are single, I don't want you to tune this passage out. Maybe you were here and you've been married before. Your spouse is deceased or you're divorced, and God might have marriage in store for you again in the future one day. And even if he doesn't, or if God's will for your life is for you to always be single, we can still see a beautiful picture of the gospel in the idea of marriage, and that picture deepens our worship. If you've been hurt in marriage, know that it's not the blame, it's not the institution of marriage that was to blame. Every marriage 
involves sinners, and sometimes one or both of those sinners will inflict serious, sometimes grave pain and suffering and, or even abuse over the, on the other over the course of a marriage. And my hope today is that seeing God's design for marriage will help heal some of those wounds for you. Many of you aren't yet married, but you will be one day. The better you understand God's purpose for marriage on this side of marriage, the more you're going to glorify God in your marriage because there's so many ways to prepare wrongly and to view marriage wrongly that understanding the biblical image, the biblical picture helps us lay that foundation. It's so easy to value a marriage based on what it produces because marriage produces a lot of good things, right? You'll find more joy in a marriage relationship, even one that has a lot of struggle. You'll find more joy in that relationship than just about any other one you'll ever experience. And then there's the other side of the coin. We have a marriage uh, Sunday school class going right now, and I will leave names out to protect the innocent, but someone in class this morning said, you know, and this is true of all of us, he just articulated it really well. You know, in my life, I've been more angry with this person sitting next to me than I've been at anyone else ever. And I was like, yeah, that's true of every marriage, right? We've, we're going to love our spouse more, and they're probably going to make us angry at times. Monica's never experienced this, but at times, more, okay, maybe she has, than anyone else in our lives. But marriage produces a lot of great, it might produce some frustration, it produces a lot of great things, it produces stability. And that's not just some Baptist preacher's opinion, just this month, the Wall Street Journal published an article finding that as of 2019, the median net worth for cohabiting couples, that's a word we made up for people living together before they get married, was $17,372. But for married couples, it was four times that, over $68,000. Net worth is you know, what's left when you boil everything down. Um, and that takes into consideration factors like age and education level and all those things. And that makes sense to us Christians. When we think about two becoming one, as Paul writes about in our text, it's not just a physical relationship, it's a whole lot more. It's emotional, it's spiritual, it's also economic. When couples marry, especially when they marry young, they cast an eye toward the future, and that look, that glance becomes longer as children and grandchildren are added to the picture. Marriage produces a stability that other relationships simply do not. And since we're here, let me just state the proper biblical order. I remember that that kind of mocking little rhyme from the playground when I was little. Maybe we just did this in Tennessee. I don't know, but it would have gone something like, you know, Larry and Patty sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes, you know, Larry with a baby carriage and all. Yeah, that, is, that, is that just us? Okay, good. Everyone's familiar with that one, right? That's goofy. Uh, it's mean probably, but it at least gets the order right, doesn't it? First comes love, then comes marriage. Then comes the other stuff. There should be some period of courtship that happens when you're of an age where marriage is a practical reality. Then there should be an engagement period, an engagement period that, in my opinion, should probably be shorter than most are today, during which you seek biblical counsel about marriage, about preparing for a life together. Then there should be a wedding ceremony that doesn't put you into crippling financial debt. 
And that's when you're married and you do the things that married people do, like live in the same house, have sex, and argue about how many family pictures are supposed to hang in the hallway and things like that. Cohabitation and any form of sexual contact outside of marriage, those things are sinful, and God's people can't engage in those things. See, earlier in this chapter, Paul wrote, But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. I bring this up because the number of young couples who claim the name of Christ yet move in together before they're married is astonishing to me. You're putting yourself in an impossible situation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 in big, bold letters, flee sexual immorality. Dude, if you can live in the same house, the same apartment, and not be tempted to sexual immorality, we need a whole different sermon. Okay, thank you one person for tracking with me on that. See, godly marriage produces a stability that cohabitation and these other relationships simply do not. But the glory of marriage is not in what it produces, though it produces a ton of good things. It's not about what we get out of it, but we get a ton of good things out of marriage. The deeper purpose for marriage has God at its very heart. The deeper purpose for marriage is that it's a key way in which we perceive the glory of who God is and portray that glory to ourselves and others. See, Paul didn't stumble on marriage as a convenient analogy of Christ's love for the church. He simply saw what was true from the beginning, but not revealed until Christ's death and resurrection. That's why it's called a mystery in the text, because it wasn't fully revealed until the resurrection. It had always been true. In marriage, we perceive in new ways the glory of God's love for us. And when we live it out, we're portraying, we're showing the glory of who God is. And so the first way that we see this is that marriage portrays Christ's love for the church inwardly. You see, you, as you experience marriage as a husband or wife, you're the first beneficiary. You're the first one who gets something out of this portrayal, this acting out of Christ's love in marriage. The last two verses of our text today have the gospel painted all over them. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ in the church, verse 32. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. It echoes what Paul has written earlier in this chapter to wives. He wrote in verse 22, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and husbands in verse 25, he says, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the, wa- with the washing of water by the word. You see, Christ's love is portrayed in marriage as we love one another in a way that leads to self-sacrifice and sanctification. Now, y- you married folks know that marriage isn't always going to reflect those things. It may reflect selfishness and insanity at times, but especially in the beginning. But over time, we should see that, uh, that just like The gospel shows us self-sacrifice on behalf of Christ. Just like the gospel shows us sanctification as God draws his people to him, marriage reflects that and that we give up our preferences, our our want-tos sometimes, the way that we would rather do things. We give up some of those things to become one with someone who is not in all ways like us. There's a promise here in Ephesians 5 I don't want want you to miss. See, let's look back down the page a little bit at verse 27. Paul writes, he, he being Christ, did this 
to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Marriage represents Christ making the church holy. That's the beauty of Christ's love portrayed in the hearts of a married couple. Husbands, do you want to know how to live, love your wife in a self-sacrificial way? Well, you look to the cross. Wives, do you want to know what it means to submit to your husband? Look to the cross. A right view of marriage only comes from a right view of God and specifically a right view on what happened at the cross, the atoning work of Jesus. You see, this son, fully God, fully man, he, he willingly gave of himself so that we could be saved. That's what happened on the cross. We were born spiritually dead. We earned our own death because of our sin. We declared, we rebelled against God. We declared war against him, essentially. And to rescue us from that, to rescue us from death, Jesus chose to go to the cross, to suffer and to die because he loves us. That's the gospel, and that's the picture of love that we see in marriage. When we look to the gospel, when we look to the cross, Paul tells us our love will grow. Practically, he points wives in verse 33 to respect their husbands. Submit was the verb early in the chapter. Now it's respect. So, so what do those things mean? What do those ideas mean for wives? There's a great book that I recommend for everybody to read titled Love That Lasts. It's written by Gary and Betsy Ryucci. Gary's a pastor in Kentucky. We won't hold that against him. Um, Betsy is his wife, and they're both involved in counseling ministry in their church. And uh, again, the book is fantastic. Betsy asks some diagnostic questions of wives that I thought I'd share with us today to help us understand what sort of this respect and submit idea means. First, in regard to our thoughts, she says, what thoughts spring into my mind when I think of my husband? And as a follow-up, are those thoughts honoring of him? That's what Paul is asking a Christian woman to do, to respect her husband, to have honoring thoughts of him. Secondly, in the area of words, how do I speak to my husband when we're alone? How do I speak to my husband in front of our children if we have children? How do I speak to my husband, or to my husband in public? And then fourth, and this is a really good question, how do I speak about my husband to others? Third, in the area of deeds, she asks, do I show my husband respect through my actions? How do I freely show him physical affection? Do I listen when he's speaking to me in public or in private? Or do my deeds communicate a lack of respect, inattentiveness, even indifference, interrupting him when he's speaking, looking away when he speaks, forgetting or even failing to do the things that he asks? Then she writes, let me encourage you to take time to sit down and think about all your husband's godly qualities. Write down what you respect, admire, and appreciate in your husband or things that you appreciate that he does for you and your family. Think also about the routine ways you benefit from your husband in your regular day-to-day -day and week-to-week -week life. Consider putting some of those thoughts into a letter of love and gratitude and giving it to him to read on his own. That's just encouragement from one wife to other wives. It's a great way that uh, Christ's love is portrayed through wives in marriage. Husbands, your call throughout this, this passage is sacrifice, to give up your own comfort, to give up your own preferences, your own desires, even your life, if it comes to it, on behalf of your wife. Your wife is called to an incredibly hard thing, submitting to a man who is, at best, imperfect. And so how can your self-sacrificial love make her 
more like Jesus? Again, the Ryuchis provide some diagnostic questions here. Do I faithfully pray for my wife that Christ might be glorified in her and that she might know his love and grace? Men, are you praying for your wives? Do I love her enough to confront and correct her sin, especially recurrent patterns of sin, and then patiently and consistently lead her into fruitful and liberating repentance? That is a high, that is a tightly packed question. There's a ton of stuff we can unpack there. We won't spend a, a ton of time there. I would commend uh, our marriage class to you, the, the Sunday school class is meeting right now as we talk uh, most of today about issues like this. How do we lovingly correct and confront one another within this marriage relationship in a way that builds each other up, a way that makes each other more like Christ? Do I wash her with the water of God's word? That's lifted right out of our text, out of Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Or do I compromise her growth in godliness because my pride, selfishness, or fear keeps me out of God's work? Do I lead her in active involvement and service in our local church? It's been true to the detriment of the church and the community, every church that I've ever been in, that there are a number of women who come to church either without their husbands or the, women, the, the, the wife in the relationship is the clear spiritual leader in the relationship. Men, don't let that be the case. Be the spiritual leader in your home. Encourage your family to be in church and to be plugged into church and connected to other relationships. To do those things, men, it's going to take first and foremost you loving Jesus more. Because let's face it, most men who struggle as husbands are struggling as Christians in a lot of cases. You'll never be a better spouse than you are a follower of Jesus. Men, strive to be more like Jesus, and you'll be a better husband by default. Marriage portrays Christ's love for the church as we love each other well. And you get a front row seat to Christ's love being portrayed, pictured by another human marriage in a way that you don't get it in any other relationship that you'll ever experience. Second, marriage portrays Christ's love to the next generation. We have to cheat a little bit here. We don't see this come into the text until chapter 6, so it's the next section, but they're so related, I just wanted to mention it today, and really it's a plug for the next week's sermon, because next week is all about um, uh, parenting and, and children and family, and so come back and we'll unpack this even more. And we recognize that not every marriage is blessed with children, though many are. Whether you have your own children or you adopt or you simply reflect a healthy marriage for the next generation of kids in your local church or your nieces and nephews or, or other folks like that, your marriage will profoundly shape the deepest and most sincere theology and base-level understanding of Jesus for the kids who regularly see it. And that's true if your marriage is great, and that's true if your marriage is Terrible. Daughters learn what type of wives to be from their mothers. Sons learn what type of husband to be from their fathers. And research shows us over and over again what we know to be biblically true already. A recent study focused on Sunday school showed that when both parents, mom and dad both, attend Bible study in addition to Sunday service, so it's talking about Sunday school, but it helps us understand just the Christian life in general, when both parents attend, 72% of their children will attend Sunday school, attend church when they're adults. When only the father attends, 55% of the kids stick. They attend church when they're adults. 
When only mom attends, has a regular faith, only 15% of children will be involved in church when they're adults. When neither parent attends church, only 6% of children attend when they're adults. Now, attending church and Sunday school, that doesn't make you a Christian again, but those numbers are telling. Another survey found that if a child is the first person in the house to become a Christian, there's a 3.5% probability that everyone else in the household will follow. But when the father is first, men, this tells us uh, uh, just a book about our leadership. When the father is the first, there's a 93% chance the rest of the family will come to know Christ. So your marriage and the parenting that flows out of it, those lay the foundation of faith for the next generation. Because that's the first and most detailed portrayal your kids will see of Christ's love. Your kids experience Christ's love first and foremost through your marriage. And so you see it in one another. Your kids see it in you. The last way that we see Christ's love in marriage is through the eyes of a watching world. The lost people in your life who see your marriage, who regularly interact with you or your wife, they might not be able to articulate the label that your marriage is a reflection of Christ in the church. But they see it. They see you responding to and reflecting the supernatural love of God. They see that it's different. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, he wasn't specifically speaking about marriage. But nowhere is that more true than in marriage. Your marriage should be so radically different than what people outside of Christ, outside of the church, expect that they notice the difference and wish their marriage was like yours, even if they don't know why your marriage is different. Church, if your marriage is to paint a picture of Jesus to your lost friends, and it is, whether you want it to be or want it to or not, whether it's a great marriage or a terrible marriage, your marriage is painting a picture of the gospel for your lost friends and family members. Church, what kind of picture is it painting? Marriage portrays Christ's love to us as husband and wife, to our children, to the lost world around us, but it also drives us to perceive, to feel, to understand the love of Christ for his church more deeply. So it's not just what we show, it's how we grow. Marriage drives us to perceive Christ's love more deeply. There's no other relationship like marriage and no laboratory in which you'll learn to love Jesus more. Two who are different become one. In goofy ways, we're different, right? Those of you that are married in the room, how many of you are hot-natured? How many of you think it's cold in here right now, or hot in here right now? Just Danielle, good. That means it's perfect. How many of you think it's cold in here right now? How many of your spouses disagree? Yep, there we go. I always said if we built a house ever, uh, one, it would probably kill me, but two, we're going to put the thermostat way up here. And now they're controlled on an app, so I can't even do that anymore, so I guess we'll just never build a house. Um, I'm just going to put a code on them or something. Uh, we're different in a million ways, right? But what a beautiful picture. These two different people, man and woman, they leave their father and mother, they are joined together, and the two will become one flesh in the ideal, 
And again, I know many of us sit here today, and we are not in the ideal, right? Because of a failed marriage, because of um, uh, singleness that we don't want, because our spouse passed away, or because the marriage is broken, or whatever. I, many of us don't sit in the ideal. The Bible speaks of the ideal, and then redeems the brokenness of of our non-ideal situation. So if you're not sitting in the ideal today, don't feel crushed by this or beaten down by this. Recognize that God works outside the ideal all the time. But in the ideal, this beautiful picture of leaving father and mother, uniting together, becoming one flesh, nothing at all between them, all the power of those differences, yet somehow still perfect unity. For those of us Christians who are married, that means our spouse comes before everything except God, right? Before our parents, before our job, before our friendships, before our hobbies. We are shifting allegiances so that our family becomes, our family of origin becomes secondary. And our spouse and the family we build together become primary. And that's hard on so many levels for both the parent and the child. Things like financial help from mom and dad, emotional closeness to mom and dad reliance on them for advice, all those things can be good in marriage. They can also derail a marriage. That's why leaving has to happen. But beyond leaving, Paul instructs us to be joined together. Certainly that refers to sex, but it refers to so much more than that. It means to hold fast, to be glued together. God's intent is that the husband and wife stay together for life. In a fast-paced culture, we make commitments and break them all the time, but marriage is different on so many levels. It's not just a relationship. It's not just a commitment. It's a covenant, a permanent bond between two parties. And really, a marriage is a covenant between more than two, right? Because it's not just you and your wife entering into the covenant. It's you and your wife entering into the covenant before God himself into a covenant that you didn't establish. It wasn't your idea. Marriage was God's idea. So ultimately, a marriage bond, a marriage covenant is between three, husband, wife, and God himself. That's why as Christians, we recognize that divorce should be an incredibly rare scenario among God's people, almost unheard of among Christians, if we rightly understand marriage. So no matter how hard things get in marriage, our goal is straightforward. Our goal is to simply work it out. That's the goal. That doesn't always work, but our goal is to get through the issue, grow through the issue, love one another through the issue. Because remember, we're picturing Christ and the church here, and Christ never quits on the church, and so the church never quits on marriage. Again, generally, there are exceptions, but, but they are few and far between. And a second implication of this joining together is one is that our priorities change. Our posture toward the rest of the life needs to change. It's not just one area of life to be balanced with others. We talk about a work-life balance sometimes. But that's really a wrong way to look at marriage because marriage is not one thing that we balance. No, marriage is the lens through which we view all the other things. It's the context through which you live, work and church, and friendships, and family as a married person. It's not the same to say you approach marriage as a teacher or architect or whatever you do. No, married people are to balance their career in light of their marriage. You approach your career as a married teacher or as a married architect or whatever. That's part of that holding fast and becoming one flesh. Marriage takes precedence and priority 
over all those things. Church, it is in our marriage relationship that we have the privilege, really. It's a duty, certainly, where Paul is talking about duty in this section. And so as we consider marriage as a duty, it certainly is. It's something that all of us are growing in. All of us are working at, those who are married. Those of you who aren't will likely be in a marriage one day and working through many of these things. So it's a duty, but it's a privilege in that we get a front row seat to the life of another human being through whom God is working. We get to see God working in that person. We get to experience, we, we get to see the picture of it. Our kids get to see the picture of it. The world around us gets to see the picture of it. And we get to feel, perceive, to see, to experience the gospel worked out at a level that you're never going to get to experience anywhere else. So what do we do with this weighty stuff? Because the perfect husband, the perfect wife, they don't exist. The perfect family doesn't exist. The, the family in the picture frame, you know the ones I'm talking about, right? You buy the picture frame. They're smiling for eternity. The kids never have stains on their clothes. They freeze for that moment in time. And some of us think, you know, one day we'll be perfect just like that family. That family is not real. They're actors. They don't know each other. And every one of them smells bad. You just can't tell because it's a picture. Probably. Okay, we're striving for that. That's not what we strive for, saints. No, we begin by recognizing that this weighty stuff that Paul has called us to, the person that can do it ain't you. Okay, Jesus Christ was the only one who lived the law. He was the only one who lived perfect. And he did that because he knows that we can't. So the perfect husband, the perfect wife doesn't exist. That should drive us to our knees in prayer because the standard is the same, right? The standard is to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Why is the standard is to submit to your husband just like you submit to the Lord? None of us are great at that. And so this should drive us first and foremost to prayer. God, help me be a better husband. God, help me be a better wife. God, help me love my wife more. Help me reflect the gospel better in my marriage. Help me be the leader. Wives, help me to submit and submit well and to submit joyfully to a fallen husband. Okay, those things only come from the Holy Spirit. The takeaway today is not try harder in your marriage. The takeaway today is to run to Jesus. Many of us probably have things that we need to repent of in our marriage. You recognize that the picture that Paul paints of marriage and, and the picture your marriage has portrayed for the last two or three or five or 10 or 15 or 20 years aren't the same thing. And you know that some of it is because of your heart attitude, because of your actions, because of the way you speak to or treat your spouse. And that's sin. And you need to repent of that sin and recognize that you, yes, even you can change because of the Holy Spirit. Where have you brought brokenness into your marriage? What habits do you need to repent of today before God and then to your spouse? Those hidden things, those things you think your spouse might not even know about, they probably do, but you need to repent of those anyway. Because if we are joined together as one, there is nothing between us. Recognize that there was nothing between Adam and Eve until there was sin, right? Marriage came before sin. Marriage is not 
a, a, a product of sin. God instituted marriage before sin ever happened. But as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, something came between them. I mean, it was nothing but fig leaves, but it was still something. Don't let there be anything between you and your spouse. Those of you that aren't yet married, this should encourage you to, one, grow in Christ as much today as you possibly can so that when you are married, your relationship will be an even better picture, a more glorifying picture, and for you, a more fulfilling picture of the gospel. As a church, we should strive to raise women, raise young women who are hard to marry. And I don't mean that because they're strong-willed. I mean that because if the husband is going to be a spiritual leader for the women that are raised up in this church, he's going to have to be spiritually strong because we want to be a church who raises up, want to be families who raise up young women who are spiritually sound, spiritually mature, and ready to lead a household, ready to, to submit to a godly husband. That means we've got to raise up young men to marry them who are godly young men who are prepared to lead godly young women to develop godly young families. And that church, one tiny little church, one tiny little town in the middle of nowhere, named because it's between Moberly and Macon or something like that. I don't even forget why we're named Centralia. We're central to the middle of nowhere, I think, at times. But one little town like this, raising up godly men and women, duplicated thousands of times across the country, is how you change a nation from trying to redefine marriage to understanding that God defined marriage for us. Sure, we can do some things legislatively, but really, if as the church, we want to change the culture, we want to change the understanding of marriage around us, we raise up people that do marriage right, and we do it for generations. And we do it together. So if you're here and your marriage is a bit of a wreck today and you have some things you need to repent of, I encourage you to do that as we get ready to sing in a minute. If you have questions, you don't need to see somebody to pray for you. If you just need somebody to, to tell you that, hey, you're not alone in this marriage struggle, that everyone sitting around you is struggling just like you are in some way, I would be happy to tell you that right down here at the front in just a minute. If you need somebody to pray with you, if you need to meet with and be counseled by somebody, I'm available during the week for that. We also have a Christian counselor, licensed professional counselor here in the building. And we can get you his contact information. It's on our website. He does a great job. Some of you are already his patients, and that's awesome. But we need help. First from the Holy Spirit, and then from the people sitting around us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for marriage. It's better than anything we could have cooked up on our own. And Lord, any modification that we as people try to do to it to change the, the number of people or the orientation of the people involved, God, we're going to mess it up. Because God, you gave it to us perfect. And so Lord, help us in that way to submit to your word. Knowing that not only have you called those of us who are married to be married to one man or one woman for a lifetime, but God, you have told us how to be married to them. And so, God, we pray today that your Holy Spirit would shape our hearts to be married in such a way that you are brought glory. Lord, many of us sit here with sin that we need to repent of, that we have committed against you and
and the one who you have entrusted to us to love for a lifetime. God, we sinned against our spouses. Lord, convict our hearts to repent first to you and then to them. Help us to do that right now even. Lord, for those who are struggling through difficult marriages, maybe marriage to an unbeliever or marriage to someone who claims to be a believer yet is not leading the lifestyle we see reflected in Scripture, God, I pray that you would fill their hearts with grace. Lord, give them encouragement. Let the, give them perseverance to overcome. Lord, help us as their people, as their church, to come alongside them and and make the intense difficulty of a, a difficult marriage, a, a painful marriage. God, help us to make that more bearable by bearing one another's burdens in love. Lord, this is a topic where many of us experience shame. Shame is a tool that Satan uses to keep us separated from you and your people. So help us to overcome that today. Because we know we need help. Help us to stop at nothing to find that help. Help us to break sinful habits. Help us to break broken patterns of communication. Help us to break senseless conflict, God. Help us to break those things so that our marriages will picture the gospel more effectively for your kingdom. Lord, help us, we pray in your son's name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we're going to be led in song in just a minute. This is a song... Um, a song about suffering, actually, but really it's a song about the sovereignty of God. God sometimes puts us in really difficult circumstances. This song was written with a man named Job in mind. It was written specifically during the, the songwriter's father's struggle with, with uh, well, he ultimately passed away. But, but this is a song of submission to the sovereignty of God. God has called us into marriages and if you're here today and you just need somebody to pray with you, I'll be standing down front. Uh, if you have questions about what it means to be saved, uh, to be baptized, to join our church, I I'm happy to, to have those conversations with you now as well. But take this time and worship. Sing, pray, whatever it is you're being led to do. We still gather together with God's people. We still have the opportunity to worship together, and I encourage you to use that.